last week, took the first 11 verses of chapter 3 last week. I'm going to look at the last uh, uh, verses 12 through 17 this week. Uh, last week, Paul uh, was talking about, as Steve um, uh, mentioned, uh, about who they were in Christ. Our whole theme has been not only who we are in Christ, but the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ in all things. Uh, now, starting in verse 12 of chapter 3, Paul continues to remind the church at Colossae that Jesus is supreme and Jesus is sufficient. And now in this section, Paul appeals to the believer to live a holy life. Last week, Paul, uh, Steve started talking about Paul's uh, comparison of put off and to put on in Colossians 3, verses 8 through 10 specifically. And he urged his readers, he urged his listeners to put off the grave clothes, the dead clothes, the sin clothes, and put on the new holiness the new life in Christ. Now this section again goes to and speaks to motives. It speaks to a renewing in our minds, a new perspective, a new thinking, a new purpose. The question begins, comes, why? Why put off the old clothes and why put on new clothes? So Paul explains this, I believe, through four motives as he talks about with this illustration and metaphor of putting on, putting on as if we would put so the message this morning, the title is Completely Clothed with Love. And so before we go any further, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for uh, the excitement of it, the enthusiasm of it. We thank you for the fellowship that we get to have. And we thank you for uh, your promise that you are with us. We're two or three are gathered, that you are among us, that you're here. And so God, I pray that you would find us. As scripture says, with people who have ears ready to hear, with hearts that are open, with minds that are ready to receive, all that you want us to know, to understand, and to do. God, I pray this morning as we open your word that you would teach us in all wisdom and all truth about you and about us. Help us to be brave in our search. Help us, God, to pay attention. Steve began talking about last week and what we'll look at this week. 
when Paul is talking about putting on and putting off, it, it's not this idea of a works or performance that I have to do this thing. It's not this idea of, of approval. Will this look good on me? Will I feel comfortable in this? It's not this idea of putting on and put off as this works type performance type thing. It's not about what we do. To put off and to put on is about decisions in our mind. All this putting off and putting off, uh, putting on is a decision in our mind. That's why Romans says that we are transformed by how? The renewing of our mind. These words put off essentially means putting away or renouncing. Paul's instructing the members of the church to put away their old clothes, the way they, they, they used to think, and to renew their minds with a new way of thinking. Because the old man, Jeremiah 17, 9, is deceitful and confusing and will tell us that God's way is too hard for us to change. And so it all begins in our mind. It's impossible to come to have a life of victory over sin if I never change my mind about what sin is and what God's holiness is. And so putting off the old man is a decision to stop serving my own personal lusts <clears throat> and my own self. It's an act, really, of faith. It's the process, if you will, of repentance. Putting on the new man is a decision to start serving God and his will for our lives. So this putting off and putting on, it's not like, hey, this feels good. Hey, I'm going to do this. Look how good I look today. It's this decision-making process that is prompted by the Holy Spirit. And let me just say this. It's not a long process. Do you remember Luke chapter 15? The prodigal son, what does it say? Luke 15, verse 17, one of my favorite verses, it says, and he came to his senses. But he didn't stay there and say, yeah, I came to my senses, I'm just going to sit here. He came to his senses, and immediately he got up and went to his father. That's the putting off. He come, we come to our senses from the Holy Spirit's conviction, and we respond. It's a decision in the mind. And so Paul talks about this. Now this work is done by the Spirit. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the third chapter of Colossians, and we're going to start with verses 12 through 14. And listen to these words. Listen to this uh, motivation for us. So as to those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, you also should, uh, should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. The first motive I'm going to look at is the grace of Christ. The grace of Christ. Most of us who grew up in the church or have been around Christian people 
have heard that grace is God's favor for undeserving sinners. Paul reminded the church at Colossae of what great God's grace had done for them. And notice these things that God had done for them in his grace. The first thing is that God chose them. Now God's word, when it came to Moses and the Israelites in Deuteronomy, helps us understand what it means about salvation by grace. Listen to this passage from Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. God wasn't attracted to you and didn't choose you because you were big and important. The fact is there was almost nothing to you. He did it out of sheer love, keeping the promise he made to your ancestors. God stepped in and mightily brought you back out of that world of slavery, freed you from the iron grip of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know this, God, your God, is God indeed a God you can depend on. Our salvation has nothing to do with what we have done. The miracle of God choosing and loving us is not dependent on us at all. If God saved a sinner based on the works, none of us would be saved. It's all done through grace. <coughs> so God alone would get the glory. Now there's another grace. Verse 12 says he also set them apart. Now this word set apart is also the word we hear for holiness. Holiness, we've set apart. And because we have trusted Christ, because God has saved us, he has set us apart, apart from the world. And as Steve said last week, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 through 20, we have been bought with a price. We are not our own anymore. But we've been bought with a price. Now, to illustrate this relationally, think of this. <clears throat> think of a wedding. At the marriage ceremony, each are set apart exclusively for each other. There's definite commitments made. There's vows said, there's pronouncements made, definite decisions are declared and put on display, right? So it is with our salvation. God sets the believer apart exclusively for Jesus. Now, I've done a lot of weddings. And it would be a horrible thing at the end of the wedding to see the groom run off with a maid of honor. <laughs> right? In the same way, we have been set apart as the bride of Christ. What a horrible thing <clears throat> to see us run away with another. We have been exclusively, graciously set apart for Jesus and Him alone. God says we've been set apart, married, committed, declared exclusive, pronounced by God. You are mine and mine alone. The next verse we see in verse 12, God loves them. Notice what Warren Wiersbe says. When an unbeliever sins, he is a preacher breaking the laws of the Holy Creator and judge. But when a Christian, when a believer sins, he is a child of God breaking the loving heart of his father. Difference. Love is the strongest motivating power in the world. And it's from God. There's another evidence. We're going to talk about love in just a little bit more, but there's another evidence. Verses 13 and 14. God has forgiven them. Colossians 
says, just as the Lord forgave you. One of the greatest things that we as believers can experience is the finality of God's forgiveness. It's not conditional. It's not partial. It's been done. Now, how can a holy, perfect God forgive a sinner? The answer is the cross of Jesus. Now, notice this in Colossians and Ephesians. It says that, that we have been forgiven for Christ's sake. For Christ's sake, we've been forgiven. Think about that. The primary reason that we have been forgiven is not to make us feel better. It's not to make us feel good. It's not to lift this burden. All those things are true, but the reason, the primary purpose of our forgiveness is for His sake. It's for His glory. It's for His receiving our thanksgiving. And He receives our thanksgiving through obedience. Isn't that beautiful? That the forgiveness is not necessarily about me, but it's about Him and His so listen to what Paul is saying to the believers at Colossae and to us. Out of God's grace, you, believer, have been chosen by God, set apart for God, loved by God, and forgiven by God. And you have, of all this thing, it's this matchless, undeserving grace we bring nothing to the table. Now, because of this graciousness of God, there is, on our part, this sincere, intentional, and hopefully fervent response to it. Living grace-filled lives, wearing fabrics made of grace, smelling of grace, speaking of grace. It's all about the grace we've been given and the grace we are to give. Now, Paul names eight pieces of clothing. In this passage, how many of you have like a favorite pair of jeans? Or that favorite t-shirt? Shoes? A hat? Guys, how many of you just love that one hat? <laughs> Some of you will hear this list and go, man, that feels comfortable. I can do that. Putting on the graces of God. First, Paul says, put on compassion. This word compassion, translated in the Hebrew and the Greek, is a, it's a Bible term that means to have mercy, to feel sympathy, and to feel it in your gut. How many of you know compassionate people? It's easier to recognize people who aren't compassionate. choice to be compassionate or not as believers. It's an imperative. Put on compassion. Now the synonym for compassion to help us is mercy, loving kindness, favor, steadfastness. All these appear in the Bible as synonyms for compassion. Mercy. A biblical definition of mercy is this, the gift of God's undeserved kindness and compassion. Put on 
I, I just want to say this, that believers of Jesus who've received the compassion of God are to be compassionate to other people, even when they don't deserve it. Most of you would love me to let that last line out. <laughs> we didn't deserve it. Mercy involves removing our right to be right so that we will see the person, not the problem or the solution. Compassion. It's a constant attitude. It's not something we switch on and switch off. It's a constant attitude of compassion. The other thing Paul says to do is put on kindness. Kindness means this gentleness, this tender concern with action. With action. <clears throat> Titus chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 2 says that we've been saved. Why? Because of the kindness of God. It's not so much that God thought and looked at us as a, oh, there's, there's a tenderness and there's a gentleness. But there was also an action with it. Kindness is action. The kindness of God also does this. He leads us to green pastures. By still waters, he restores our soul because of his kindness. There's action. And we, in turn, be kind to one another. Now, I want to make a difference because in our culture, I think somehow we have grayed this a little bit. Some people think kindness and being nice are the same thing. And it's not. Being nice... Maybe buying somebody a coffee at Starbucks that you don't know. Being nice may be letting somebody in, in front of you, on 278. That would be nice. And if you don't do that, please don't get one of our gray stickers on the back. <laughs> I've heard it said that it's nice when you tell somebody they got something stuck in their teeth. That's nice. These are just nice acts. But kindness is much more robust. Kindness has a bite to it. Kindness is something you do even sometimes when you don't want to do it. Someone has said niceness is kindness minus conviction. Kindness, although it's been promoted this way, is not just a random act. There's purpose. And kindness is all over the Bible. It's found in the Old Testament. It's found in the New Testament. But guess what you won't find in the Bible? Be nice. <laughs> You'll find be kind. Because God was kind to us. It's aggressive. It's brave. <clears throat> it's daring. And it's a virtue rooted in Scripture, modeled by Jesus. Put on kindness. Put on humility. Paul says. Now, the pagan world in which Paul was living in in this time, or, or writing to in this time, uh, they did not promote humility. What did they promote? They promoted pride, knowledge, domination. I know it all. What culture do we live in? Paul says, put on humility. Humility is not thinking poorly of yourself. I love this definition. Humility is having a proper estimate of oneself 
in light of the will of God. It's countercultural. It says put on gentleness. Gentleness can also be translated as meekness. Now, meekness is not weakness. It's power under control. And the words that describe this are when, a healing medicine, a cult that has been broken. But in each of these, there is power. A wind, as we know, can suddenly become a storm. Medicine, if taken the wrong way, can kill. And a horse can break free. So this power is under control. It's, it's gentleness and meekness. A gentle person is welcoming and tender and characteristically all love about Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty eight. come to me. Why? For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Paul says, put on patience. This word is long temper. Patience. That's a fun one, right? <laughs> it's a, a thought in our mind. I've got to have it right now. Don't make me wait. Patience or a lack of patience is evidence of anger. And anger can be evidence of a person who feels like they've lost control. And so patience, if you really boil it down, is a matter of trust and rest in the sovereignty of God. Put on bearing with one another. The word literally means to hold up one another, to bear with one another, to share the load. Uh, let me just say, uh, uh, our culture promotes isolation. Our, our culture promotes individualism. Our culture continues to promote, you do you, don't worry about me. And that's anti-biblical. <clears throat> Scripture, over and over, particularly in the New Testament, bear with one another's burdens. Share this load. Uh, let me just ask a question. Is life hard? Yes. That wasn't nearly strong enough. <laughs> <laughs> Life is hard. Relationships are hard. Working is hard. We're to put on clothes that bear with one another. The hardness of this life. And the last one, uh, the next to last one, is put on forgiveness. Now, you, you may be sensing that some of these clothes fit well. And when we get to something like forgiveness, you go, that one doesn't let me move around very much. <laughs> that's coming from God's closet to the believer. It's not enough that a Christian must endure grief and frustration and refuse to retaliate. We must also forgive. I like to ask questions in the middle of this so it helps us get a thing. Now let me just say this. Is forgiveness Christ-like? I'm leading you down a road.
and in the withholding. And our perfect picture of forgiveness of Jesus on the cross when he is being murdered brutally. And for the people who are murdering him, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Finally, Paul says, put on love. One commentator said this, this garment acts like a girdle that that ties all the virtues together. And I'm not sure if I like that word picture. <laughs> I don't want a girdle, never worn a girdle. But it gives, it gives us understanding that everything, all these virtues are held together. All the spiritual qualities Paul has named, all these aspects, all these clothes. Listen to this familiar passage. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. Love does not demand its own way. It's not irritable. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Love does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth comes out. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith. Love is always hopeful. Love endures through every circumstance. Think with me for a minute. Am I a loving person? Love is the first fruit of the Spirit. All the other virtues follow. When love rules our lives, it unites all these other aspects that Paul's talking about and makes them make sense. Without love, they don't make sense. So listen to what Paul's saying. It's only when we put off the old garments and get dressed with the garments of Christ that we can experience and display the beauty and harmony and peace of Jesus. Paul continues. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called to one body and be thankful. The peace of Christ is the motive. Paul takes it from being character to conduct. How can a believer know that they're in the will of God? One answer is the peace of God. When a believer loses their inner peace with God, when there's something there, and we've all experienced there's something off in us about our peace, then there's oftentimes something off with us and God. Now, just as a reminder, when you and I became believers, there was this thing that happened, this person that took up residence inside our lives to bring us peace and to point out things that would not bring us peace. This person is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, this third person of the Trinity, lived in you and me and believe. The Holy Spirit, the power of the resurrection. The comfort of his presence, the undeserved blessing of conviction, is alive in the believer. Let the peace of Christ <clears throat> rule. Now this word rule is an athletic term. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago when we saw George Brad lose it. When he got called out for the tar incident. This idea of rule is an athletic term. It's an umpire saying, no, you're disqualified from this uh, reward because you broke the rules. And Paul is saying that this peace of Christ 
an umpire. It, it helps us understand the rules. Whether in thought or actions, when we decide to abandon God, we also decide to abandon his peace. We must be aware that there can be this false sense of peace that we bring upon ourselves. Do you remember Jonah? Remember Jonah? He deliberately disobeyed God, and yet Scripture says he was also able to sleep in the boat. There was this false sense of peace about Jonah. One author said this, I had a peace about it is not sufficient evidence that we are in the will of God. There's more to it. There's a dependency. There's a searching of scripture. There's a prayer. There's a bringing it to other people. Other believers. Peace in the heart alone is not always equal to the peace of God. And I think that's wise of Paul, uh, God to tell Paul, to tell the church there, ask other believers. You are one body. Why did he put that phrase in there? Many don't believe this, or they don't want to believe this, but if we as individuals are out of the will of God, sinning, doing our own thing, entertaining our own thoughts and lusts, there will be discord and disharmony within the church. And the reason why is because you are the church. I am the church. And when I am in sin and not bringing my best to, to God or other people, we can become people that bring discord and disharmony in our relationships and in our churches because we don't put our best foot forward. There's this idea of, of deception and hiding. And we go back and put on the old clothes of propping up our image Justifying our behaviors. So when a Christian loses the peace of God, we can begin to go in different directions. And it's only when we confess our sin and claim God's forgiveness and do God's will that we experience the peace of God within again. One of the great things I like about this passage is at the end of verse 15, when there is peace in the heart, there will be praise on the lips. Colossians 3.15, and be thankful. One commentator said this, the Christian out of God's will is never found giving sincere praise to God. Think about David in the, in the Old Testament Psalms. Psalm 32 is a great example of this. Listen to Psalm 32, a picture of God's restoration in the Psalm. I'll read the whole thing. Lunch isn't quite ready, so we, we're good. we got plenty of time. <laughs> Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiveness. And just think about if you can resonate with this song. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those who record, whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refuse to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sin to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time, that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. 
For you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway of your life. I will advise you and watch over you. Don't be like a senseless horse or mule. I love that. <laughs> that needs a bit and bridle to keep it under control. Many sorrows come to the wicked, but unfailing love surrounds those who trust the Lord. So rejoice in the Lord and be glad. All you who obey him shout for joy. All you whose hearts are pure. The song returns. <clears throat> so the liars. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and thankfulness in your hearts to God. The word of Christ. Our motive. These false teachers that Paul's talking to, that they try to intermingle the word of God and their false teachings, and there was no success in it. There was no clarity in it. The word will transform our lives if we permit it to dwell. Now, I love this word, dwell. And the word dwell in the Greek means to feel at home. How many of you ever been on a trip? And you're like, I'm ready to be home. How many of you ever served in the military? And you're like, I can't wait to get home. What is it about home? experience the grace and peace of Christ, the word of Christ will feel at home. The word of God, the Bible, his word to us will not feel judging. It won't feel like a burden of something I've got to read. It'll feel at home. It'll feel like honey to our taste. Paul wrote this not only to the individual, but to the entire church. Let the word of Christ dwell among you, is a possible translation. Among us, as the church, as the body. One author said this, Many saved people cannot honestly say that God's word dwells in their hearts richly because they do not take time to read it, study it, or memorize it. How can something dwell in us richly if we never pick it up? Notice this, too, that there is a definite relationship between <coughs> what we know of God's Word and the songs we sing. One way we teach our kids about Scripture is what? We teach them songs. Over and over. One commentator said this, A singer has no more right to sing a lie than a preacher has to lie. Now, let me just take a side minute and brag on Seth for a second. Seth is very, very wonderful about making sure what we sing on Sunday morning is backed by Scripture. There, you know, as well as I did, there's all kinds of great songs out there. There are some really feel-good worship songs. But not necessarily biblical songs. And Seth will come to me and say, man, yeah, I'm not really sure about this. And if we can't agree and find the scripture on it, we say, well, we just won't do that. Or we'll clarify it before we sing it. Paul says that the word of God dwells in us in a way that it comes out of us in song, but it's biblical. There's a connection. And Paul mentions three different types of songs. There are psalms, there's hymns, and there's spiritual songs. Psalms, of course, were the psalms. 
Hymns was a rehearsing of singing praise back to God, and spiritual songs was a combination of all kinds of songs that identified Christ and uplifted the Bible. Now I want to finish with this last verse, verse 17. It wraps everything up. It's the familiar verse. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. The name of Christ. Now the ancient world held a person's name to be of utmost importance. And for those of you who don't know or haven't heard, Matthew's name means a gift of God. <laughs> I just wanted to remind you in case you forgot that. As believers, <clears throat> as Christians, we bear the name. in just for a minute. There's not a day goes by where I don't hear my name called. <clears throat> and there's not a day goes by where I can say, you know, I don't want to be called Matthew today. Same as it is with believers. We bear continually the name of Christ. It means an identification. It means a belonging uh, the word Christian, I told you a few weeks ago, is only mentioned three times in the New Testament. It means little Christ. We bear the name of Jesus. And not only do we bear that name, it brings with it authority. You know, a check is no good until a signature is on. We have been signed. Our name has been written. somehow to the name of Jesus. That's heavy. We cannot take our name uh, just to church <coughs> on Sunday and leave it here. It's a great privilege and a great responsibility. Have you ever noticed this? Have you ever noticed what you're talking about and all of a sudden maybe church comes up and you say, hey, what do you go to church? I go to the Baptist church. And you just kind of have these conversations. Or you'll talk about ministries. I go to FCA. I go to Young Life. I go to this uh, Bible study. I go to this life group. But whenever somebody stops and says, but I don't believe I'm a follower of Jesus, it's like the, the conversation sort of takes a different change. <coughs> because the name is powerful. I'm going to close with this. Listen, it's like, man, that's me. I can do this one. I, I understand this one. I, I, I'm, I'm leaning into that one. Which one's not your favorite? Which one do you have a hard time putting on, deciding 
resting, moving in faith. If you're not sure, ask God in faith with gentleness and love. Take some time this week and go back through 1 Corinthians 13. Ask yourself, am I a loving person? Second question is, how do we let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts? What are evidences? Patience? Obedience? How can we tell that Christ's word is dwelling in us? What song is your life singing right now? How can wearing the wardrobe described in this passage affect the way you live? Really? As I was thinking about this passage this week, about all the different places we have to go shop for clothes. Can you imagine if all the believers shopped at the same store and they put on forgiveness and love and gentleness? It would be a wonderful display of Jesus. discernment and wisdom to know. In these next couple of minutes, we're not in a hurry. We want to listen and hear from you. Give us courage. Help us be brave to acknowledge and know clothes that simply are not 